From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. From leading with equity to housing instability and living with dignity, we'll ask Denver's mayoral candidates what they'd prioritize to ensure no one is left behind. We need to look at systemic change and not one-off solutions. We've got to elevate our neighborhoods. We own a lot of publicly owned land. And building on that land reduces the cost immediately of the homes we put on it. And later, a Colorado musician makes an unexpected international connection. They were based in Ukraine and I was based in Denver to record what was meant to be a demo track. But their performance was so powerful that we really just needed to keep what they recorded and use that as the basis of the song. I'm Diane Palais, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. It was the car that both of my kids learned how to drive on. When it came time to get rid of the car because it made no more sense to repair it again, we took a vote and we decided to donate it to CPR. The process was really easy. We had to have our title, which we signed over, and the tow truck came and took it away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The next mayor of Denver will have their hands full. As the leader of the state's capital city and largest city and metro area, they will be in the position to influence policy across the state and region. Seven of the candidates took part in a forum hosted by our sister publication, Denverite, this week, in partnership with nonprofits that serve marginalized communities. CPR's Nathan Heffel and May Ortega moderated the event held at the Carla Madison Rec Center. Each candidate had a set amount of time to respond to questions and two chances to rebut. Starting with Lisa Calderon, define equity and how you would practice it as mayor of Denver. First of all, thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful having a forum that we are rooted and grounded in community. Um, equity means giving everybody what they need, exactly what they need when they need it. And so that is different from equality, where you give everybody the exact same thing. Not everybody needs the exact same thing. Um, for example, I've trained law enforcement for 20 years, including in the jails. And I said, you know, equality is giving everybody a pregnancy test. That's, that's equal. Uh, equity means for those who need it, right, for potentially pregnant people. So we want to gear our remedies toward uh, the disenfranchisement, the dis- divestment of communities of color, um, and to make sure, that, because some of our communities need more than just what's equal for everybody else. So we're really tailoring our remedies uh, for those who need it most. All right. Kwame Spearman. So, so first and foremost, I went to East High School across the street, celebrated my 20th anniversary in this room. So I'm excited to be here. Um, <clears throat> I, I am the CEO and co-owner of Tatter Cover, which is across the street. And my answer actually reflects that. I think you have to live it. You know, we actually didn't ask ourselves at Tattered Cover, how do we become more diverse? What sort of equity goals do we need? What we did is we created an environment in which everyone was welcome. We had leadership that was representative of the types of people that we wanted. We did things like we encouraged um, 
uh, different ethnicities, different types of people, people who had disabilities to become a part of our organization, and we cherished them. When we felt that there were um, uh, a lack of participation amongst our staff, we addressed it. My point to you is that we have to live and breathe this type of, and, uh, <clears throat> we have to live and breathe equity. And if we don't do that, if we just have rules and enforcement and numbers and quotas, we won't get there. And so when you're looking for your leader, you need to see if that person actually walks the walk and has been in an environment in which they've lived and breathed equity. And I believe that I have. Thank you. Thank you. Chris Hansen. I think, Lisa, your definition was spot on. A wonderful job of starting this question on the right track. And I want to build on that definition and share some of the examples of how I think I have lived that out in my work representing this part of town in the state legislature. Um, I think I've lived these values of getting the folks the things they need, not in a sense of everybody gets the same thing. And I tried to do that on a hundred million dollar, billion dollar scale at the state capitol, working on things like the expansion of the earned income tax credit, working on the expansion of the child tax credit in the state, making sure that undocumented workers got unemployment insurance benefits when current state law two years ago disallowed that, creating the Left Behind Workers Fund working on property tax relief that disproportionately went to multifamily and to low-income families, a billion-dollar package of property tax relief, the biggest in state history. That has been my guiding star as I've worked at the state level on your behalf. Thank you. Mike Johnston. I also thought Lisa's definition was perfect, so I'll just add to say it is getting everyone what they need as opposed to give everyone the same. Uh, and I think that requires a couple things in a leader. One is the first is making sure you have a leadership team that represents uh, diverse backgrounds and voices, so you know you have all voices at the table. The second is being carefully attuned to what communities need and how to take action on that. I'll give you one example for me and what that looked like. Uh, I've been the CEO of a foundation the last three years, and during COVID, one of the things we did was built and led an organization called COVID Check, which if any of you had a COVID test or a COVID vaccine, you may have come to one of our sites. Uh, we saw halfway through the uh, vaccination process that we were seeing very disparate levels of vaccination access based on communities of color. Uh, and there was a lot of hand-wringing about that. Uh, our belief was we ought to take direct action. So we invested several million additional dollars to get mobile vaccine labs out to communities that were not getting access to those, getting out with canvassers from those neighborhoods to talk to people, get them appointments, get them rides, get them vaccines. We were able to dramatically expand the equity of that vaccine distribution. That's I think we should expect the leader of Denver to do. Leslie Herod. And a reminder that you can raise your hand if there's something you'd like to rebut. You can do that as well. Thank you. There you are. So we've defined what equity is versus equality, but leading with equity is a bit different. Uh, leading with equity means that when your values or when people and the issues in front of you are in conflict, that you lead with equity. And as a legislator uh, these past few years, um, I have often witnessed when uh, people come to the table and say they believe in equity, but when it comes to actually doing the work or stepping up, it doesn't show up, right? And so for me, leading with equity is, is similar to the work that we did to ensure that um, infant and maternal mortality was really looked at and addressed in our Momnibus package, which we then changed to be more, uh, to be more mindful of diversity and equity, to be more gender inclusive, but to put people first that needed that help. Um, that's what we have to do every single day. It also comes with, li with lived experience. So when we put forward a package for minority businesses, um, we realized that it wasn't just about money for minority businesses, it was reshaping the entire program to ensure that minority businesses actually fell under the categories that we were placing folks within. That's what leading with equity is. Thank you. Debbie Ortega. Thank you all for being here tonight. Um, 
so for me, what this means is making sure that the budget that the city has translates into how we address communities that have been left behind. We still have neighborhoods in our city that don't have a basic standard of infrastructure. That are still fighting for curbs, gutters, sidewalks. And one of the things that I did was I worked with this administration to have some people from our Human Rights and Community Partnerships Office go to Seattle and learn about their race, social justice, inclusion, and equity program. And they came back and trained all of our workers across the city. And now we have every agency incorporating those issues into our budget in addressing especially our neighborhoods that, are, that have been left behind. So for me, it's doing things like food access and making sure that the Healthy Food for Denver Kids program that we have is addressing the need where it is the greatest. Thank you. I'm Kelly Bruff. For me, uh, I think of equity as equity of outcomes. Otherwise, it actually isn't equitable. And the example I'm gonna give you uh, that's concrete in my life was in 2018. I led the work at the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce to create Prosper Colorado. It focused 100% on the inequities in our economy for, uh, based on race and gender in three areas. Uh, we saw income inequities, women and people of color overrepresented in lower paid jobs, underrepresented in higher paid jobs, and developed specific strategies of how our companies could change that reality. Home ownership. We saw serious inequities for people of color in terms of home ownership. Today, one in four people of color own a home versus three in four if you're white. So we changed that strategy to try to address the barriers that are preventing people from owning homes. And lastly, starting a business and the barriers to starting businesses for people of color. For me, equity is about you remove the inequities in our economy. Nonprofit Soul to Soul Sisters asks, quote, the skyrocketing price of rent in Denver has rapidly transformed our community, pushing out black families and businesses and creating a hostile housing environment for low-income communities and communities of color, for example, Westwood and Five Points. Starting with Kelly Bruff, as mayor, what actions would you prioritize to ensure that all people can live with dignity in our city? And just a reminder, if you would like to have a rebuttal, raise your hands and we will use the, uh, the sheet over there. Thank you. I would focus on a number of issues, but first and foremost, I think we have to stop expecting uh, that developers can build the product we most need for our residents to be able to live. So I would focus on building that product uh, myself as your mayor. Uh, when you look at publicly owned land throughout our city, what you realize is particularly surface parking lots, and I want you to think about our rec centers, our libraries, our police stations, our firehouses, our potential partnership with Denver Public Schools, RTD, the state of Colorado, the federal government, all to say we own a lot of publicly owned land. That's like a land bank. And building on that land reduces the cost immediately of the homes we'd put on it. We'd be able to put both for sale and for rent product for our own residents to build wealth and live in the city that they work. All right, Debbie Ortega. So I'm the board president of a nonprofit housing development organization that's been building housing in the city for 42 years. So I understand the challenges of bringing online the stackable deck of financing that's needed to bring the price point down. One of the things that I wanna do is bring forward manufactured housing that can be placed on any public land. This housing can be built at 40% cheaper 
But when you put it on public land and you take the land cost out, we can get the price point down even cheaper. So we can do this as for sale housing for people who want to achieve the American dream and build wealth. And we can do this for rental housing. And it can also be both multifamily and uh, single family homes. So this doesn't all have to be in Denver either. So my goal is to place this housing where we have transit across the metro area so that we're working to address the needs of many of our families who live in Denver, work in Denver, may work in other jurisdictions. But this is how we begin to close the gap. Thank you. Right. Leslie Herod. This question really is about gentrification and how we can stay in our neighborhoods uh, that we hold so dear, especially those with cultural legacies and histories um, that we want to stay a part of. But we should also be able to benefit from the thriving community and the thriving economy that is Denver. So how can we have our communities, especially communities of color, uh, Five Points, the North Side, Westwood, continue to thrive and we stay there, right? That's the key. So one thing that I would do is also, yes, build on publicly owned land, but build for the people. Denver DPS and RTD own the majority of the vacant blighted lots in our communities. What if community was able to build, um, build housing for our communities in the way that we want them? Yes, that means more than just having a studio with, a shared, with shared spaces. It means having space that you can live in and hold dear. But additionally, I think we have to have a conversation about bringing people back to Denver. So in the first 100 days of my administration, I will talk to folks who have been recently displaced from Denver and say, what do you need to come back and deliver on that within the first term? Mike Johnston. I want to talk about the linkage between these two questions, which is one, how do we make it possible for people to stay and live in Denver in a world where 80% of the teachers and nurses and public servants can't afford to live in the city right now? And how do we do that with a mind towards equity? Uh, and so when we look at, uh, this was the project I spent time on two years ago, which was launching an effort called the Deerfield Fund, which was focused on closing what is the single largest homeownership gap in the city of Denver, which is the gap between black homeowners and white homeowners. Right now, we know that disproportionately, black and African-American families cannot get access to homeownership in the city because they cannot get access to the down payment. You need to be able to get into a home. You have the income, you have the credit, you got the job. What you need is down payment assistance. And so we launched the Deerfield Fund with a vision towards targeting those families that we knew needed the most support because of histories of discrimination and lack of access to capital and making it possible for people to get down payment assistance that would allow you to get into homes, stay there, build wealth, pass those on to the next generation. Uh, that's the kind of program I would expand citywide for us to make sure first time, first generation home buyers who don't have that wealth accumulated can get access the down payments they need to build that wealth. We have oh. a raised hand here. How much time do we here? have for rebuttal? 30 second rebuttal. Wonderful. So let's keep it real since we're talking about marginalized people. Uh, Deerfield Fund, it would be great to hear what that term means and why it is meant, right? So it's for black folks who wanted to look for a better way of life uh, and moved out back in the day, and I'm sure you know the, the date, but we need to connect it to the history of discrimination and violence against black people. The other thing, the Deerfield Fund um, takes equity from your home. He calls it, Mike calls it, uh, paying it forward, but why not just give the money, right? So why do you have to own parts of our home when you have a lot of billionaire friends who can just give and invest in communities of color? Let's have a short Great. response. 
Uh, sure, two corrections. Uh, it does not take equity from your home. You don't pay a loan on it. You don't owe a debt on it. You keep it until you either refinance the house or sell it. Um, right. And so that doesn't require an additional, and it's at zero to no interest, so it does not require actually an additional payment uh, for people. And the second is it also does not have an eligibility requirement to say you have to have been here for a certain number of years, you have to have had a certain history of redlining. Other cities have done that. We said we think the basic experience of black and African American home buyers is discrimination throughout the system. So anyone is eligible based on their own self-identification, not based on history of how long they've been in the city or what discrimination they experienced. So I think that was an important- home? What happens when you sell your home? What happens when you sell your home is you keep all of the upside of the equity in that home and you pay the loan forward to the next family. So that's not, right. that's not, that's not a loan. I mean, that's not, a, that's not a debt. That is equity you can invest. And when you buy a home at 300,000 and you sell it at 600,000, you made $300,000 of equity mm -hmm. on that home you wouldn't have made otherwise. That's 95% of the upside. That's unlike any other structure for investment on home ownership building in the country. All right, thank you thank both you. for this conversation. Thank you. Chris. Chris Hansen. All right, thank you. Uh, this is a massively important topic. We've heard some good ideas as we've gone down the table, but I really want us to zoom out and get the sense of scale correct. The reason we have displacement, increased rents, and gentrification is fundamentally Denver's not been able to keep up with the supply of housing as 1,000 people a month have moved here. By some estimates, we're 50,000 units behind. So we're gonna need every tool in the toolkit to catch up, otherwise that pressure is gonna be inexorable on our neighborhoods, and that is unacceptable. And that's why as mayor, I wanna to put together both private, public, and nonprofit solutions here, because we're gonna need all of it, 50,000 units, folks. And it's why I prioritized in the last state budget about $700 million for things like LIHTC, tax credits, to get a huge amount of additional private investment to supplement the places where public investment can fill some gaps. We're gonna need all of that to catch up, otherwise rents will continue to rise and our neighborhoods will continue to gentrify. Kwame. I, I agree with most of the policy proposals, but, but I just wanna make something incredibly clear. Denver is unaffordable if you are a teacher, a nurse, a firefighter, a police officer. And respectfully, it happened under y'all's watch. We've got to hold our politicians accountable. It's not enough for people to just come in and say things to you. The reason why I want to be your neighborhood mayor is because we've got to elevate our neighborhoods. We've got to disaggregate our cities. You can actually start seeing what's occurring. Five Points is being gentrified. No one has done anything to do that. The only way we're going to stop that is by going into the neighborhood, understanding what the people there are looking for, having goals, publishing those goals, and holding ourselves accountable. It's a novel thought, but that's why we need a fresh voice, and we need someone with a business perspective who focuses on output to get things done. I am the son of a teacher. I grew up here. I couldn't do that anymore. This is unacceptable, and quite frankly, it's not a new phenomenon. The city has been increasing in population and increasing in, in housing costs for the past decade. So I respectfully ask my friends, what have you actually done that has improved the situation in Denver? And if you, and I'd ask our audience, do you do you feel it? Thank you. And Lisa Calderon. We have a uh, oh. rebuttal. Mike Johnson. Uh, what have we actually done? Other folks probably have different questions. But yeah, many of us have been at work at this for a while. What we did is we actually went into those communities, talked to folks about the need around affordable housing, found there were a couple of major needs. One was we needed a long-term, permanent, stable funding source for affordable housing. We needed to expedite the process for approving affordable housing by making sure communities uh, got on board to accelerate that. And we needed a statewide ballot measure to do that. So we built a coalition of 260 organizations across the state that came together to pass Proposition 123, which is the first time in Colorado history there's been a statewide ballot measure to pass affordable housing. 
housing. That will put $50 million a year into Denver every year in perpetuity to build 25,000 units over the next eight years, which will close the gap in affordable housing. So for me, that's what I've done the last two years on affordable housing, which I think will make a massive impact. Right. So Mike, you actually represented a majority-minority district. You and that majority, majority, excuse me, that majority minority district is less affordable and it's whiter than it was during your time. And everyone who's been to Five Points, everyone who's been to North Park Hill knows that. And that's unacceptable. I understand that you've got flowery things to say about how we're going to improve it. But you did not serve your residents in a way that you should have. And if you had, those neighborhoods wouldn't be having the problems that they're experiencing right now. Thank you. We do want to move on, I think. And I want to give you just, a, let's say, 10 seconds of time to come back from that, and then we'll move on. I know. I just think the difference is, I understand, Kwame, your theory, since you've been back here for 18 months, you couldn't run a record on what you've actually done in Denver, so you're trying to tear everyone down for what they've actually done. If you want to know Mike, what you've actually I, done, actually it is actually build a coalition to deliver right statewide now. results on affordable housing that's never been done before. Right, that's you. what we've actually thank done. You. Thank okay. you for your thoughts. Yeah. Ms. Um, Calderon, please. Um, so when I ran in 2019, this was the number one issue. Black and brown folks were the top displaced community in the communities in the nation. And I couldn't get our public officials to listen to us to see that our proverbial house was being burned down because we were losing our people. Um, so I ran. And uh, what I think has been missing from these debates is we focused on individual homeowners instead of the system that has created the wealth and equity that has gone on in our disinvested communities. So I propose social housing. Um, I want to have a social housing development authority. Seattle just passed an ordinance to basically the city to get into the housing business. And that means you never pay more than 30% uh, of your rent, uh, including if you lose your job, etc. So, you know, this individual home ownership, that's great. There's also housing discrimination, which hopefully we will get into. But we need to look at systemic change and not one-off solutions. An excerpt of the People's Forum, a Denver mayoral candidates forum moderated Tuesday night by CPR's Nathan Heffel and May Ortega. Our news partner, Denverite, hosted the event in partnership with nonprofits focused on supporting underserved communities. We'll share more of the forum in coming days, including questions that were raised about environmental racism. You may watch the entire forum at CPR.org slash mayor. Ballots for the Denver election go out in the mail Monday. You may check out our voter guide at denverite.com. When we come back, thousands of Sandhill cranes descend upon the San Luis Valley. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. I hope that you find Terra Firma a place where you're not being pulled away, but pulled to a few minutes to connect to a story, to a landscape, and to yourself. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. About this time every year, birds fill the sky over the San Luis Valley. Enormous flocks of thousands and thousands of very big birds known as greater sandhill cranes. They'll spend two months in and around the Monta Vista National Wildlife Refuge on their way to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem where they spend the summer. This weekend marks the 40th anniversary of the Monta Vista Crane Festival. Susan Boshane is the manager of the festival, 
Susan, welcome to Colorado Matters. Hi, thanks. I'm really happy to be here. So tell us about the greater sandhill crane. Why is this such a special bird? Well, it's just an amazing wildlife spectacle in our backyard in this little piece of Colorado heaven. Um, they are in their migration route and they stop over in the valley for around two months. Uh, these birds are part of the sandhill cranes that are throughout the country, but we have a, a subpopulation of the greater sandhill cranes uh, that are really amazing to see. And the whole population of about 20 to 25,000 birds every year come to the San Luis Valley to um, fuel up, to get really healthy and really good condition before they make their migration further north up to the greater Yellowstone area to um, reaffirm their territories, uh, build their huge nests, and then defend their territories and raise young. When they'll, and then they'll come back in the fall too. So we get the same population back here in the fall for a few months. So it's just really amazing the way um, we have some of the habitat of, that's available for the cranes in the valley. They find everything they need in the valley. So they have great roosting areas where they sleep at night in wetlands, mm -hmm. some loafing areas throughout the day, and then a lot of foraging. So there's a lot of birds that you can see on Monta Vista National Wildlife Refuge. Well, describe these birds for us. From what I understand, they have uh, brilliant red heads and white bodies. Can you tell us more about what they look like? Yes. Yeah, so the adults have that brilliant red head and they are in their breeding plumage, which is a beautiful gray this time of year. Um, and they're huge. So they're about five feet tall. Wingspan is between six and seven feet. Wow. So they're enormous birds. They're one of our bigger uh, birds in North America, actually. A lot of people are really affected by the sound that they make. It's a chortling. And it's just... Some people think they're like pterodactyls and they kind of look like pterodactyls. Wow. Prehistoric. <laughs> so so these cranes, they, they follow a very specific path. They winter in New Mexico, up through Colorado and on to Yellowstone. And from what I understand, they've been doing this trek since long before humans were even in the San Luis Valley, right? Yeah. So there are sand or there's crane fossils that are 2.5 million years old. And there's been other ones found in Florida. They're even older and they're still about the same bird from that long ago. Wow. So they've probably had this pattern for quite a long time, but there's also a petroglyph that tells us that humans have been in this Valley for a very long time too. And the petroglyph of a sandhill crane is uh, on the Western side of the Valley. It's uh, aged to about 3000 to 4,000 years old. So they've, been making this trek for a very long time. Now, you've been working at the refuge for 11 years now. From an ecological perspective, is this the biggest event of the year? It is the biggest event of the year, definitely for us and all the wildlife lovers and even the valley. It, it brings in a lot of birders and a lot of economic growth. So it's really important um, for the whole valley to share and everybody can really appreciate this little jewel that we have in the valley. And this trek that these birds take is kind of symbolic for you all living in the San Luis Valley, right? It's a place known for its long, cold winters. 
Exactly. I, for me, I don't know about everybody else, but when you start hearing the cranes, it almost, it really does mean spring is coming, even though it might not feel that way for a little bit longer. <laughs> yes, um, I've, I've given up on the concept of spring in Colorado. It's, <laughs> it's kind of spring moments. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But we still like to see snow, too, because we need our snowpack to be really healthy to support the cranes for, for all the wetlands that we need in the valley. Now, do we have any sense of what makes the San Luis Valley so attractive to these birds? Um, just, I guess, with my background in ornithology and wildlife biology, it's really we have everything that they need for their whole um all their different needs throughout the day and then this time of year and even in the fall. So we have really good foraging in the spring and the fall when they're here, um, which includes a lot of private land. They depend a lot of um, the barley fields that have been harvested. So they pick up the waste grain on private land, especially in the fall. And then we have wetlands. We have the Rio Grande Bay River coming through the um, mm. valley and that, so in the fall, there's a lot more wetlands available. Um, springtime, it's a little bit more restricted. So we are able to provide wetland habitats that they need during the night and throughout the day when they're um, loafing. That's a technical term, kind of like after you eat dinner mm -hmm. or lunch, you want to go loaf on the couch for a little while. Absolutely. So they kind of do the same similar behaviors. So we just kind of have all the resources that they need to get really healthy before they go. Uh, start laying eggs and defending territories. Speaking of laying eggs, from what I understand, this ends up being basically a two-month-long sandhill crane date night. So what are they up to? <laughs> That's a really good question. So yes, it is a date night. So the cranes don't start breeding until they're somewhere between two and five years old. So some of the birds right now are starting to go on their first dates. So they'll be out dancing. You can watch all sorts of different mm. behaviors out in the farm fields, on the loafing areas. So they're kind of on their first dates, but cranes actually pair for life. So they've been together this whole time throughout the winter. So now they're kind of going on those date nights, kind of getting uh, prepared to um, lay eggs and defend their territory up in the greater Yellowstone area. Now, this also heralds the arrival of a whole lot of tourists. In March of 2020, even as the pandemic was really taking hold, you all estimate about 17,000 people came to the area to see the birds. Tell us about the types of people who attend this Monte Vista Crane Festival. Oh, it's a really nice mix. And yes, we got the data from road counters, and which was they were out for a month because the cranes are here for a very long period of time. so. Outside of even the Crane Festival, it is the most busy weekend because we have a lot of cool events going on at our in town at Monta Vista at the Sky High uh, Events Center. Brand new building. It's beautiful. We're really excited about that. So a lot of folks that come here are professional photographers, amateur photographers, wildlife viewers. Some people have never seen the Sandhill Cranes. So it's really exciting to share this with them. Mm -hmm. um, and just Folks are looking for something to do right now. Sometimes we don't have great skiing snow, although we do in mm -hmm. Wolf Creek. Um, so there's just different things that people want to come do. And it's a really cool experience for a lot of different people. 
Well, I'm just curious, how many people are you expecting this year? Um, since this is the first one since 2020 and COVID, we're, we're definitely expecting um, at least what we had in 2020. So our guess is probably five to 7,000 people throughout the weekend. Mm. Wow. Well, does it ever get old seeing this annual spectacle? Never. It's in the fall. I I get to see it twice. So oh, wow. There's a lot of there's a lot of cranes here in the fall too. We just don't have an event mm-hmm. around that um, fall migration. So I get to hear this twice a year and every day it, it never gets old. It's exciting, magical. exciting. So Suzanne, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Suzanne Beauchene is the manager of the Monte Vista National Wildlife Refuge. Its 40th annual Monte Vista Crane Festival runs tomorrow through the weekend. When we come back, a musician discovers an unexpected musical connection between Colorado and Ukraine. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. As you drive between Buena Vista and Salida, you can't miss the spectacular white chalk cliffs on Mount Princeton's southeastern side. Despite the name, the cliffs are not made of chalk, but instead are sculpted from kaolinite. It is a soft clay, deposited by hot mineral waters that bubble up through cracks in the granite. Mount Princeton was first called Chalk Mountain, before Ivy League surveyors renamed it. But the river beside it is still called Chalk Creek, and it still flows through Chalk Creek Canyon. This peaceful area was once a busy mining district with two aerial tramways and a railroad that went all the way to St. Elmo until 1910. St. Elmo is now a well-preserved ghost town, but the warm waters that helped create the chalk cliffs are still burbling, drawing bathers far and wide to soothe themselves in the hot springs in the shadow of the breathtaking Sawatch Range. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With support from Coble and Company. Musician Paul Christensen dreamt of working on his first album for almost a decade. The pandemic shutdown finally gave him the time to focus on making that dream a reality, but the catch was that he had to work with other musicians remotely. When he found a team in Ukraine, none of them could have imagined that a war would be just around the corner. He spoke with CPR's Eden Lane. What motivated you to create your first solo album? This is something that I've been thinking about for a long time, um, probably the better part of a decade or so. Always thinking about, is this something that I could actually do? I've always appreciated the format of an album. It feels like such a complete intentional journey that an artist takes the listener on. And so I've been thinking about it for a while, if this is something that I could actually do. And so a couple of years ago, I decided to give it a shot and see if I could actually make it happen. And so that's kind of the impetus of pulling together different songs that I'd written over the years and some recently uh, to pull it into a, a comprehensive album. So this is my first go at creating a full-length studio album. And it features piano as the basis for much of it, and then also some uh, local Denver area-based strings players, some strings players based in Ukraine, and then also some more electronics and effects that I added in afterwards. Christensen began work on this project in 2021, when the pandemic shutdowns allowed him time to focus on music. Yet, collaborating with other musicians was more complicated, but he found an unexpected partnership. Was still the first piece that you decided to tackle in terms of recording or writing for this album? 
It was, yes. Still, which is the title track, uh, the album is also called Still. The pandemic made it a little bit trickier to be in a room with lots of people, usually a small room with lots of people. And so working remotely in many ways was was really important at that time. And so um, I worked remotely with this Ukrainian group. And then just a few months later, the war started. It was just kind of a matter of chance, um, really bad luck, unfortunately. Uh, but it just added a whole new meaning to their work on this particular song on this album, considering what happened a short while after. They were based in Ukraine and I was based in Denver to record what was meant to be a demo track. But their performance was so powerful that as we went through the production phase later on, my producer and I decided that we really just needed to keep what they recorded and use that as the basis of the song. So we kept the, the demo recording, so to speak, and turned it into the final and then added on some local Denver area based string players on top of that. Fiverr is the platform where Christensen found Casca Records services listed. It was incredible, um, way, way more than what I was expecting. Um, I, I had high hopes because I looked at some of the other work that they had done, uh, but I wasn't actually prepared to hear what they actually created. I didn't hear from them for a couple of days as they were doing the recording, and then all of a sudden I heard back and, and heard those just just disarmingly beautiful tracks that they had recorded. And again, those became the final versions on the album. Uh, thank you, Paul, <laughs> for, for kind of words. Uh, that is Anatoly Shmargan, founding director of Kashka Records. He is known in Ukraine and abroad as a musician, producer, composer, and music manager. His classical education and diverse musical experience allow Casca Records to work in almost any style of music. I spoke with Schmargan with the help of an interpreter. The work that you provided inspired him and the musicians in Colorado that were intended to do the final performance so much that it's your work that appears on the final track. So it's as if you're playing across the internet, across the world with one another. Have you heard the result? Yes, I did. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. It sounds it sounds good, good really. So tell me about the musicians that participated in this session because it was still in the pandemic restrictions, but before the war that you're experiencing now. Yes, yes, that's 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 right. Um, and although we work with a lot of different musicians, I do remember the musicians we worked with for this session quite well. Uh, among other things, because one of them is a good acquaintance of mine since forever ago, the counterbassist Anton Zhukov, who uh, actually plays in the Kiev uh, National Opera. And as it happens, his um, wife is a cello player. Uh, then uh, viola player is um, Andrei Chop. He's, you know, like a, one of uh, the best uh, viola players in, uh, in in Ukraine. 
And then uh, Kirill Sharapov is first violin. He is also, you know, like a greatest musician. Uh, musician and uh, yeah, and Andrei Rachmanin, you see, Andrei Rachmanin. His uh, second name is Rachmanin, almost Rachmaninov. Uh, he is also, uh, you know, like uh, one of the best uh, Ukrainian vi violin player. He is also arranger, uh, composer, and uh, you know, like a top level musician. I see that even on your YouTube channel, as recently as two months ago, you've still continued to post new work. How are you coping with the situation of war all around you in Kiev? Yeah. You know, it's like, это ровно почти год. Вот завтра будет ровно год, как началась война. 24th of February last year, we were supposed to set out for a tour all, all across Ukraine. So, you know, we got here to the studio, the bus was already waiting for us, all of our instruments and everything were already packed, everything was ready to go, and then we start seeing planes going by, there's explosions... Uh, of course, all of our gadgets, all of our devices start announcing that, oh, you know, there's been an invasion. So everything started off. So the first, you know, half hour, hour or so, uh, we weren't even sure exactly what was going on. We thought maybe there was some mistake or maybe this was some kind of act of provocation. Uh, because to be honest, uh, myself and a lot of my friends uh, at that time didn't believe that a war like this in the 21st century was even possible. But, you know, after a bit, as we were looking at the news and, you know, seeing imagery of tanks and uh, planes and uh, helicopters landing within a few kilometers of Kiev at the airport in uh, Gostomol, you know, it became evident that this was not some kind of error, this was not a prank or, or a misunderstanding. So, a number of the musicians that were there with us had arrived in their own vehicles, and a lot of them opted to immediately start evacuating. Some of them set out to go get their families and had West, one of our sound directors, um, was uh, evacuating with six cats in his car. Вот я наш инженер, наша контент менеджер. So myself, our audio engineer and our content manager, we decided that we were going to stay. I am um, I'm not entirely sure exactly what what motivated us, but we yeah we decided that you know as long as there's a roof over our heads, you know the power's still on. There's still water running. We're going to stay here, so we ended up staying. Вот, но я не исключал, конечно же, возможность, что если вдруг so, you know, of course, I didn't exclude the possibility of, you know, if things got really bad, say, you know, bombs falling genuinely nearby, uh, that we might still leave, we might still evacuate. But, you know, up to a certain point, while things still seemed 
relatively safe where we were we were going to stay. And, uh, at first, we had two families living here with us in the studio because these two families, they were living in tall multi-floor buildings near the top of those buildings, whereas our studio is a single-floor building with a basement, and we have kind of all of the basic necessities for everyday life, you know, shower, kitchen, heating, all of that. So we set them up here in two of our uh, recording areas, you know, kind of where we keep the, the piano and everything. And we set out some couches and laid down a lot of sleeping bags. We have a whole lot of sleeping bags because uh, as a studio, we like to go on fishing and camping trips. So we have kind of a lot of tourist and camping equipment on hand. So we set that all up for them to bed down at the studio and they stayed with us for about a month. Can you tell me what it's like for you now because you're continuing to to create music and to publish music. How are you able to do that in the midst of a war? Well, uh, frankly, as I kind of mentioned earlier, uh, you know, I'm an adult now, I've got my gray hair, I feel confident in being able to assert this at this point in my life, but music is my calling, music is my life. I can't imagine what else I would be doing. As I told the crew, you know, as long as we've got power, as long as we've got a roof over our heads and we're not being directly bombed, we're just going to keep on keeping on. And I think our first uh, session was in March, yeah, somewhere within 20 days of the beginning of, uh, of the war. You know, of course, the, the first week or so, you know, we were still in shock, still fairly shaken by all of it. But after a while, when it was possible to uh, walk to the studio, we started sessions again and continued our work. And naturally, there were also a lot of um, orders that we hadn't been able to fulfill before the beginning of the war that we still needed to work on. Anatoly Shmargum says the day-to-day includes struggles with power, heating, and water, which they combat with a mix of generators, batteries, and their music. Always their music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, In short form... Mm, Sometimes I, I even uh, um, live in that kind of comment, uh, let's do music, not war. Hmm. What do you think it's important for listeners here in Colorado and in the U.S. to understand about the work you're doing and the life you're living during the war right now? I, you know, I hope it doesn't sound too high-minded of me, but you have to take the things around you in your life that, that bring you joy and hold those close and uh, protect them, defend them with all that you've got. I personally don't get too involved in politics, don't, don't like to think too much about politics, but it's certainly my impression that a lot of what we're seeing uh, ends up stemming from people not being able to, to find ways to come to an agreement with each other and instead looking for a fight to get into. And as a result of that, you know, we have situations like this that are just 
seem inconceivable here in in our you know current year that you would you know be bombing cities over a disagreement so we have to we have to find ways to work these things out otherwise during their collaboration on still the title track of paul christensen's album the two men never spoke to each other they communicated solely through email and music charts when i spoke to paul yesterday I asked him if he had a message for you because I learned that you and he had never spoken, only communicated via email. Yeah, right. I'd like to play that for you now. Thank you. First of all, I would say I'm so sorry what's happening to your home right now. And I hope that you and and everyone in your world, all of your loved ones are okay, as okay as you can be right now. Second thing I would say is thank you for making space in your lives for this project. It wasn't the most time-consuming thing when we worked on this song, but it added so much meaning. And um, I just, I don't know what the the final album or the piece would have been without their involvement with this. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's because of your music. It it inspired us. So we did our best and, uh, you know, just music. Christensen is a musician based in Denver. Anatoly Schmargen runs a studio in Ukraine called Koska Records. They spoke with CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. With thanks to Dan Boyce. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.